The scripture is from Joshua 6, 1 through 5, and 15 to 27. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the women and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Uh, Good morning. It is great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Over the last month or so, I've gotten the chance to meet a lot of you who are here today, and uh, even more this morning, as you have welcomed me and my wife, Becca, and our kids here this morning, and uh, I've gotten to see and experience throughout this whole time uh, this warm and loving community that you guys have here at LBC. And so it's my privilege to get to share with you this morning God's word and his grace to us in it, uh, if my voice will last. So as I begin, let's first pray for help. Father, we are a needy group today. We need to hear from you in your word. We need to hear about what we just sang about your overwhelming grace in light of the things that we have all brought in with us here today. Spirit, be our teacher and help us to see Jesus in this passage. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, my family and I, we were driving back from a week-long trip at the beach in South Carolina. We were coming back to our home in Winter Park. It was a long trip. Uh, At that time, we had a newborn and a two-year-old, which makes every trip longer. And uh, as we're driving, we suddenly start to notice an alarming amount of fire ants in our car. Now, I don't know if there's a non-alarming amount of fire ants to discover in your car, but this was a lot of fire ants. And so we pull over in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina. We unpack the entire car. Uh, inoculate it with enough dollar store ant killer that I've probably taken 10 years off of my life, pack it all back up, and start again until we notice more ants. So we stop the car, we pull over, we do the same thing again, get back on the road, and now we are, we are just about to hit the Florida Welcome Center on 95, when suddenly fire ants start pouring out from behind my daughter's seat. And so we, we stop the car, we get out, and at this point, <clears throat> I don't know what I'm doing. So I just start, I start ripping apart our luggage, I start ripping apart our seats. Finally, I take the carpet on the bottom of our car and I pull it up and I see something I have never seen before. Colonies and colonies of fire ants with their eggs swarming underneath our car carpet. And I, I turn and I look to Becca and I say, I don't know what we're gonna do. I need help. (laughs) You know, we we had gone on this, we'd made this long journey. We were at the entrance to being home, to being in our place of rest, and suddenly we were facing a hopeless situation. Well, that describes Israel here in Joshua 6. Israel is on a journey. God, in his grace, is leading them from Egypt to the home that he promised them. From slavery to freedom. From an old way of life to a new way of life. To living in the reality of God's promises. Of his commitments of grace to them. And all of a sudden they run into a problem. Jericho, which is the city that was on the edge of the promised land, Jericho is on lockdown 
The city is shut. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's coming out. And suddenly, Israel, as they're about to be home, is facing a hopeless situation. How can they live in the reality of the promises of God with what they're facing? How can we live in the reality of the promises of God in our families, in our marriages, in our places of greatest shame, in our places of greatest regret with what we are facing today, with the Jericho in our lives, with the barriers outside of us or inside of us that keep us from living in a greater experience of God's commitments of grace to us in Jesus. There's three things in this passage, three things that show us how. God's strange methods, God's strange intrusion, and God's strange grace. So first, God's strange method. Israel, Israel is staring at this hopeless situation in front of them, and in one verse, everything changes. In verse 2, God says to Joshua, see, look, behold, I have given Jericho into your hand. In one verse, Israel gets this injection of hope. The victory's already been won. God is <clears throat> with Israel in his presence in the Ark of the Covenant that gets mentioned 10 times in the first 15 verses. And God, God is going to give Israel this land. Israel won't defeat Jericho. No, six days they'll march and on the seventh day they will rest and God will give them this victory. This is the whole pattern in the book of Joshua. God gives and Israel inherits. It's a book of grace. And this passage here <clears throat> is no different. Israel is going to live in the reality of the promises of God because of his grace for them. But they're not robots. God tells them to do something. So what are they supposed to do? The last thing they would ever expect. God's method for overcoming this hopeless situation, it, it looks ridiculous at first. They're supposed to march around the city, blowing horns, <clears throat> and then on the last day, everyone's gonna shout at the top of their lungs, and that will knock down the city walls. It's, it's comical. I mean, it, it reads more like a Saturday Night Live skit than battle plans. This is how God is going to defeat the obstacle in front of them, this is his method for getting them into his rest. Yes. Because it's not a battle plan. No, God's giving them a worship service. Israel is, is staring at this hopeless situation, and here, here is God's strange method for overcoming it. Worship me. God doesn't give them a battle strategy. <clears throat> he gives them a ceremony, a liturgy, a, a seemingly ridiculous dance to remind them of his love for them, to remind them that they will live in the reality of God's promises. 
as they center their devotion, their trust, their heart on his grace, giving it to them. This was an invitation not to strength but to weakness, to dependency, for Israel to embrace their neediness, for God to do their work, his work within them. And really, that's what worship is. Worship is an acknowledgement of God's overwhelming grace in light of our overwhelming need. And God is saying here, worship, worship is what will lead you into an experience of his promises for you. Not mustering up your strength, not relying on your own ability, not trying to be the hero, but instead getting lost in praise and wonder at his grace at work within you. Because you see, it's as Israel worships God. It's as they celebrated the Passover in chapter five and march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant here in chapter six, they are being reminded to see what's in front of them based on what's behind them. They're being reminded to see Jericho in front of them in light of the grace of the Exodus behind them. And when we come here every Sunday, feeling stuck in our marriages, feeling trapped in our stories, feeling hopeless in a particular sin, and we worship God. We are being reminded to see whatever is in front of us based on what's behind us. We are being reminded to see our Jerichos in light of the grace of the cross and resurrection of Jesus behind us. So God's strange method, second, God's strange intrusion. This all sounds great, right? Really inspiring. Is it really inspiring to the people of Jericho? You know, there's nothing about this that's good news to them. Oh, what a relief. God is going to fight the battle for them. God, he redeems Israel out of systemic racial impression, from a world superpower. He promises them this new beginning of, of freedom and flourishing, only it comes at the cost of the people of Jericho. And, and the passage makes it clear, God's the one doing this. Israel gets a, a rather nonchalant verse and a half describing their whole role in this. God knocks down the walls, and by the end of the chapter, the whole city is destroyed. So how do we make sense of what God's doing here? Well, back in, in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, he's going to give his descendants, he's going to give Israel this, this land. Uh, but not yet. Because as God says, the sin of the people living in it hasn't yet reached their full. Only now it has. Uh, the people who lived in Jericho at that time, they practiced things like child sacrifice, degrading sexual sins. Uh, they were known by, the, by their neighbors as being a vicious, brutal people. If they were alive today, whether you are a Christian or not, we would all rightly condemn them. And now their sin has reached its full. And so now here in Joshua 6, God is judging them for it. You know, the theologian Meredith Klein describes God's, uh, this is God's end of time judgment intruding into history. 
God has a fixed day at the end of time when he will judge every act of evil, every moment of degrading the dignity of another human being with complete and perfect justice. And what's happening here in Joshua 6 is the strange intrusion of God's end time judgment into the story. And it's God's judgment here that if we're being honest, it, this is a hard concept for, for modern people like you and me to grasp. And now in one sense, it should be hard. We should grieve what happens here in Joshua 6 because God does. Ezekiel 33 says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But it's not just that this is hard. It's that this makes God look to modern people like you and me, it makes him look repugnant, unworthy of my devotion, unworthy of my heart, unworthy of my worship, unworthy of the things he's asking for here in Joshua 6. But is it possible that a God of judgment is actually the exact type of God that you need? Mirzloff Wolf, who's a professor at Yale, he's a Christian, uh, for years rejected the idea of a God who judges until he found himself face to face with a situation of such injustice that he could no longer make sense of God unless God was going to do something about it. He writes about it this way, he says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. And he says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I couldn't imagine God not being angry. How would God react to the carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? No, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? And then he says, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. No, God is wrathful because God is love. So what Wolf is saying is this. What you need is a God who looks at the world, who looks at your life, who sees the way that other people's evil has hurt you, has marked you, has wounded you, and will say no. No, what they did was wrong. You need a God 
who will say, I see what happened to you even if nobody else saw it. I will name what happened to you even if nobody else has the guts to name it and I love you enough to do something about it. I mean, just think about your life. Which is harder to accept? That there is a God who made all things, loves all things, and will judge the evil that's been done against it? Or that there is a God who made all things, loves all things, and will simply shrug his shoulders at the worst that's been done to you and the people you love? You don't want a God like that. I know you don't. Your heart can't take a God like that. It shouldn't. A God like that is not worth your devotion, not worth your trust, not worth your worship, not worth the things he's asking for here in Joshua 6. And it's this strange intrusion. It's through this strange intrusion of God's end-time judgment here in Jericho that he is, he is opening a door to Israel now living in the reality of his promises. And it's through God's judgment <clears throat> breaking into history again, centuries later, that he opens a door for you and me to live in the reality of his promises, which is what we need to see next. So we've looked at God's strange method, his strange intrusion. Lastly, uh, his strange grace. Uh, in this chapter, there is 102 Hebrew words about Jericho. There's 86 Hebrew words about Rahab. All right, this is just as much a story about the destruction of a city as it is about the rescue of a woman. Joshua has made a promise to Rahab, an oath of grace to her. Now, Rahab was, was a prostitute who, when Israel's spies came to check out the land, she hid them in her brothel. She was an outsider. She lived a life of scandalous sin. And yet Joshua promised to her in chapter 2 to rescue her and her family because she believed the spies' message of God's grace in the Exodus. And here in verse 22, Joshua says, go to the prostitute's house. Go to the house of the woman who could have never deserved this in a hundred lifetimes and keep my promise of grace to her and her whole family. And in verse 25, she and everyone who belong to her are saved alive. Joshua keeps his promise and makes Rahab now in the heart of God accepted before she's acceptable. She's now not a, a half member of God's people. No, she drinks from the same overflowing cup of God's covenant love as anyone else because she is not there now based on any worthiness in herself but solely on the worth of the one who's made the promise to her. And suddenly, Rahab opens up a whole new door to an entirely new life. Suddenly, she and her family, who could have not been farther away, are welcomed into the reality of God's promises. 
Promises that have now instantly erased her past and given her an invincible hope for her future. And yet this was all just the trailer for the movie. Because in the fullness of time comes Jesus, who is the greater Joshua, who in the gospel keeps his oath of grace he made to his father from before time began to welcome into the promises of God people like you and me who could have never deserved it in a hundred lifetimes. Only he does it by doing something that Joshua never could. By not just pulling Rahab out of that wall, but by putting himself in the wall. Not just by delivering us from judgment, but succumbing to it. Not just by saving us alive, but by devoting himself to destruction. By allowing the walls of God's justice to collapse on him. By on the cross letting his father who loves him level him to the ground and not you. And do you know what that means? Driven by his father who loves you, Jesus Christ has now moved your judgment day from the future to the past. He's intruded into the story, only this time not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment so that you could open an entirely new door to a whole new life in the promises of God for you. And Jesus does all of this by being the greater Joshua, whose heart can't go out, can't but go out to Rahab's like you and me, to the least deserving, to the most unworthy, and he now, just like Joshua in the gospel, makes you accepted before you are acceptable in the heart of his father. And that doesn't go away the moment that you become a Christian. No, that is now the central reality of who God is for you. You will, we will never reach a moment we will never reach a point on our own where we have earned our place into the Father's heart. We will always need his grace. And Jesus will never stop giving it to you abundantly. When you are in the gospel, Jesus will never get fed up with you. He will never grow cold with you. He will never become indifferent to you. No, your sin your weakness, your shame, those are not barriers to you receiving Jesus' promises. No, like Rahab, those are what qualify you for receiving his promise, which opens wide the floodgates of his unrestrained, unrelenting grace for you. And when we see God's strange grace in Jesus the greater Joshua, it's here that we see how Israel and we will live in the reality of God's promises for us in light of what we're facing. We see how we can look at what is in front of us today based on what is behind us in the gospel by worshiping and resting in Jesus. who became the greater Joshua, 
by doing something else Joshua never could. By becoming the greater Rahab the prostitute. When on the cross, Jesus Christ, ripe with love, was reckoned an outsider with scandalous sin, who now welcomes into the promises of God all who by grace belong to him. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, your promises in the gospel, they are where we find our rest. They are our home. Thank you that in Christ we know there are ours for eternity. Father, I pray in light of whatever we have brought in here this morning, whatever is in front of us, whatever barriers there are in our lives on the outside or the inside that keep us from living in a greater experience of your commitments of grace to us in Jesus. Father, I pray even right now that you would center us on worship of Jesus so that we can look at what's in front of us today in light of what's behind us in Christ. Amen. Thanks for bringing that word to us this morning, Eric.